Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm delighted to be here at Books, Books, Books with Hugh McKay, psychologist, social researcher and writer, to discuss his latest non-fiction book, The Inner Self, published by Pan Macmillan. Hugh has written 21 books, fiction and non-fiction, including The Good Life, The Art of Belonging and Australia Reimagined. He's well known to Australians as a weekly newspaper columnist for some 25 years, and in recognition of over 60 years of pioneering work in social research, he has been awarded honorary doctorates by Charles Sturt, Macquarie University, University of New South Wales, Western City, Sydney, and Wollongong. The Inner Self, the non-fiction book we'll be discussing today, is being released by Pan Macmillan at the same time as his latest fiction book, The Question of Love. And in 2015, with very good reason, Hugh was made an Officer of the Order of Australia. Hugh, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much, Nicole. It's a great pleasure. I'm going to start by asking you the question that I ask everyone because I think it's lovely to hear authors describe their work in their own words. What is your book, The Inner Self, about? It's about the fact that our sense of personal identity uh, is uh, composed of two quite different bits. Um, the, the outer shell, which is the way everyone perceives us, uh, and it's about our roles, our place in the world, uh, the fact that I'm a partner, a father, a brother, a son, a neighbour, a writer, a member of a choir, etc. All of those things that are perfectly obvious to other people uh, are, are my identity. And identity is all about our uniqueness. It's all about how we're different from each other. And as a social psychologist, a social researcher, that's what I've mostly studied over the years, how people's identity is constructed and how it's affected by changes in their position in the life cycle and what's going on around them and so on. But towards the end of my writing career, I decided that it was time to turn the focus inward and look at the other aspect of our sense of self, which is nothing to do with the social construct, nothing to do with how other people see us, but it's to do with what's going on deep inside us. And when I began to write the book, I thought what I was going to be talking about was some of the private, not always terribly attractive aspects of our personality that we like to keep hidden not only from other people, but even from ourselves. But the more I studied the subject and the more I introspected about it, the more I thought about it, the more I realised that that's actually not what the inner self is about. When you drill right down to the core, the essence of who we are, what you find is our common humanity. So whereas the social identity, the image that we project, the self, the shell that other people see is all about the differences between us, the absolute essence of who we are is about how we're all the same, how we're all linked by our common humanity, 
which is not an amazing thing to say because we belong to a social species. Human beings, like many other animal species on the planet, we're a social species. We can only survive, we can certainly only thrive if we establish a sense of belonging to families, friendship circles, neighbourhoods, work groups, other communities and groups that we might belong to. That's what humans need in order to stay sane and in order to lead fulfilling lives. Therefore, it goes without saying that one of our primary functions as members of this species, one of our key responsibilities to humankind is to promote social harmony, to try and establish and maintain and nurture, engage with all of those groups and communities and neighbourhoods and friendship circles, etc., that sustain us. Therefore, this is a long answer to your question, <laughs> therefore, uh, uh, our, when you go right to the essence of what is expected of us as human beings, who we actually are as human beings, what you find is, not surprisingly, our capacity for love, our capacity for compassion, for kindness, for respectfulness towards other people, for inclusiveness, for tolerance, all of those things that promote social harmony are the essence of who we are. Now, in other words, what I'm saying is our outer shell, our sense of identity is about difference. Our inner self is about what we have in common. But I think it's important to say one other thing about the inner self. When we get to the heart of it and discover that it is about our capacity for compassion, the thing that makes it possible for us to cooperate and work together in human communities, that is actually very demanding. It's easy to say and it's hard to do. And there are many occasions where we don't want to be loving, we don't want to be kind because we're our ambition is getting in the way of being kind to this person. Uh, we don't want to show respect to someone that we actually feel contempt towards, even though the world would be a better place if we set our contempt aside and, and showed kindness and respect. So it is a very demanding discovery. And it's not surprising that many of us try to hide from that demand. You're near the beginning of the book, you write that the more we understand ourselves, the better equipped we are to lead a meaningful and purposeful life. Why is it so important to know and to understand ourselves? I think we will never achieve anything approaching real life satisfaction until we live authentically. And living authentically means bringing our outer self and our inner self into some kind of alignment, actually facing up to the demands of what it means to be a human. The extent to which we hang back from that or try to hide from that uh, compromises our integrity, our authenticity as a human being, 
and means that we're only going to live a kind of half-life. And one of the tests of that will be the integrity of our personal relationships. I mean, how, how often do you hear people in a marriage or a relationship of some kind saying, I wish you'd told me that you felt like that? Or do you mean to say all these years you've been hiding from me the fact that you want to do X or Y or something? Mm -hmm. uh, this is about inauthenticity and relationships suffer from inauthenticity and so does our sense of the meaning of our own lives. Hugh, you, I want to come back to something that you touched on in your opening. You write about the difference between our personal identity, which, as you explain, is really just a social construct, and our inner self. Could you tell us a little bit more about that personal identity? What is that and how does it differ from the essential inner self? Yes, um, and I think we can relate this to our journey through the life cycle, Nicole. Um, most of us spend roughly the first half of our lives trying to establish a sense of identity, trying to get a toehold on the planet, trying to establish who we are in a social context. And that involves things like choosing a job or a career or choosing a partner or deciding whether or not to have kids and maybe buying or renting a house and developing a certain style, the way we dress, the sort of car we drive, the way we speak, establishing some kind of political or religious or other convictions. These are all about defining our particular place in the world. And I've often said and sometimes written in the past that if you want to find out your identity, you don't look in the mirror. If you want to find out your identity, you look into the faces of the people you love or the people who put up with you or the people that you're friendly with, the people you work with, your neighbours. That's who you are. Uh, you can't make sense of identity. I mean, the very word says we're identifying ourselves. That means we're discriminating, distinguishing between us and others. So you can't make sense of your social identity just by thinking about it. You can only make sense of it by, by looking at the context in which you live. Um, this is why you, you know, part of the folklore says you, you judge someone by the, the company they keep. Well, the company they keep uh, defines their social identity. But that's, that's something that is mainly a younger person's preoccupation. And it's not always the case. Some people at the age of 15 uh, go inside and start thinking deeply about who they are. But most of us are pretty concerned, primarily concerned about the externals in roughly the first half of life through to our 40s. And often the sort of classic midlife crisis is about this very point where we come to realise that what we're what we're thinking of as our identity is only half the story. And Hugh, what you write about and what you, where you identify the problem arises is where there's a real disparity between the person's identity, their social construct, and their inner self. Could you talk to us a little bit about what the consequence is when there's too great a gap between the two, between the external identity and the inner self? Yes, yes. 
Um, most of us, I think, have experienced this, by the way. It comes out as a, as a kind of psychological discomfort. An American psychiatrist, who I've quoted in the book, uh, talks about the sense of our authentic being that eventually comes to all of us, and it often comes as a bit of a shock. Uh, so I think we, when we experience, it's almost as though if you, if you think of recent events, recent situations you've been in or conversations you've had, where you know you're not really being true to yourself, where if you ran that as a movie and sat and watched it and watched yourself doing and saying those things, you would find, you'd feel a little bit uncomfortable. You'd say, actually, that isn't what I really think. I don't really identify with the way that person is behaving. And that's the glimmer of the gap. That's, that's the sense of this chasm that often opens up mm -hmm. um, between our external social identity and our inner self. And, and when you get right down to that, of course, what, what we're experiencing is that we are living, acting, talking less lovingly, less compassionately than we would be if we're being true to ourselves. And you also write about the dissonance that a person experiences if their inner self is not reflected in, or if there's such a great disparity between the face that they present to the world mm. and their inner self. So there's, yes. there's what you've just mentioned, the, the lack of compassion, but there's also the internal tension and stress mm. from maintaining the two, having the two be so different, I guess. Yes, yes, and there are social consequences of that as well. I mean, there is, there is indeed internal tension if we know that we are not actually being true to ourselves, if we go along with a conversation that actually makes us feel uncomfortable but we pretend to be comfortable. Mm. Um, uh, that, that, that makes us, uh, that, that creates tension within us. But there are social consequences. That will create tension between us and others as well. Not always clear where it comes from, but it's the sort of thing where people say, oh, you never know where you stand with him. Or, I don't know, I never feel I quite get through to him. Or there's something a bit, there's something missing, you know, there's something a bit fake about. In other words, we're quite good at reading the gap in other people, even though we're not always so good at detecting it in ourselves. And so you give an example, for example, uh, you give an example of somebody uh, who hears somebody express a view that is repugnant to them. So it might be... Um, a racial intolerance, or it might be somebody who says something negative about refugees. If yes. that's antithetical to your own beliefs, but you don't speak up, you allow that person to continue talking, you don't say anything. What does that say about you and what does that do to you? Well, that's a, a lovely example of the dissonance that's created between who I really am and how I'm behaving. Uh, it, it comes down to the problem of inauthenticity. And what's actually happening in that moment is I am diminishing myself. I'm pretending to be, for reasons of social pressure and conformity, I'm pretending to be less of a real human mm. than I know, know myself to be. And that's an experience I've personally had. I think most of us have had mm. that experience where 
I'd, I'd like to be able to say I've always stood up for what I really believe, and I know I haven't. Mm. I know I've I know I've let people get away with saying things in my presence mm. uh, that I should have challenged. Not not in an adversarial way. I mean, part of who we really are, this capacity we have for being kind and respectful, and so on, relates to how we manage disagreements and disputes uh, and, and contesting ideas. That can all be done lovingly. It doesn't have to be a knockdown, drag out fight because I'm disagreeing with you. I'm disagreeing with your views. That, that means I still respect you as a person. Hugh, one lovely point you make early on when you talk about the best way to discover your inner self, to find out what your inner self is, you talk about the importance of creativity and the arts of of both, of uh, being a witness to going going to art galleries, reading books, listening to music, but also to being creative yourself. Both of those, you say, potentially help you to unlock your inner self. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm a very great believer, and it's not exactly an original idea. Many, many people have said this over thousands of years. But it's an but important I, one to be expressed at the moment. When yes. Yes. As we all know, the arts are so much under threat in terms of yes. the, um, art subjects, humanities subjects being more expensive for students to do at university, the arts particularly struggling at the moment in light of the, the COVID crisis. So yes. it's a really important point to be discussing now. Yes, yeah, I agree, absolutely. Um, the creative process in general, um, uh, whether we're consuming it by going to a concert or a gallery or a play or whether we're participating in it by actually singing or dancing or writing or painting or photographing or whatever, does seem to bypass a lot of the kind of rational stuff that we get hung up on and does seem to have the power to take us into ourselves in a way that's different from the way we often act in our normal social interactions. So uh, a person who, for example, goes to a poetry writing class or a person who starts writing or painting or singing in a choir or doing something else, when you're experiencing, when you're immersed in that creative uh, uh, act, it's as though all the, all the artifice just melts away. You, you, you have to be truly yourself to give yourself to the creative act, uh, which is why I think a lot of people, for example, people who may write poetry or might might have written short stories or something and put them aside, come back to them later and look at them and say, now, where did that come from? I, I really like that. What was going on when I wrote that? It's a very common experience for people to be pleasantly surprised. And I think what they're discovering is the gap. They're discovering that when they were doing that creative thing, they were being more truly themselves than much of the rest of the time. And that's the magic about the creative process. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a parallel here. Um, Gandhi said, uh, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. We can talk about that as well. But he might easily and equally have said the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in creativity, mm. lose yourself in the creative process. And 
and seeing what comes out is a revelation about who we really are. And that can even happen when it's someone else's creativity, when you're caught up mm. in a concert mm. uh, or when you're transported by a particular work of art or a play or a film or whatever it might be. Those magic moments when you do lose yourself in the play, in someone, in a, in a situation, in another character or in a brilliant piece of writing that's absolutely inspired you, it takes you uh, beyond the shell into who you really are. And that's part of one of the things that you've mentioned that we're going to come to talk more about, this concept of interconnectedness, interconnection, that as you're experiencing somebody's art, you are connecting with that person, they are speaking to you, whether it's through their writing or their music or through their art, that's a, a, a common link between you, isn't it? It's, it's all mm. part of your argument about connectedness. Yes, it's a very special case, Nicole, of, of connectedness because all the usual barriers are swept aside in the creative process. Mm. I mean, we try to connect to, to each other when we speak or when we write to each other or text or email each other or whatever, uh, and we often have trouble. Uh, but when we're connecting through the creative process, it's a kind of, I hesitate to use the word mystical, but it's mm. a kind of, it's a, it's a less rational, less formal, mm. less structured kind of thing. It's just a kind of heart-to-heart -heart mm. connection, uh, which most people experience as a very rich uh, moment. In their lives but that that does relate absolutely to this point which again is an echo of the beginning of the conversation about the fact that our inner self is about our common humanity we can't talk about being true to ourselves we can't talk about the authentic Nicole or the authentic Hugh without uh, acknowledging that that's all to do with our interconnectedness, our interdependence on each other. Hugh, let's come back to that common bond, I suppose, that we all share, as you say, that, that, that at our core, we share a core humanity. You say that, that one of the things that we all have in common at our core is a capacity for love. I'd like you just to talk a little bit about the type of love that you're talking about. So you make the point that love is an expression that's used in different ways. C.S. Mm. Lewis has tried to define it in terms of the four different types of love. Mm. You're, you're talking about a particular type of love. Would you like yes. to explain to us what, what that, that kind of love is that you're talking about here? Yes, yes. Um, and I'll begin by saying I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm not talking about familial love. I'm not talking about the love between close friends. All those things are wonderful and transformative and transcendent and all of those things. What I'm talking about is that, that when I was describing the core of our being as the capacity for love, uh, and I used as a sort of alternative word, compassion. Compassion is perhaps a better word because what I'm talking about here, the thing that actually makes the world go round, the thing that actually brings people together in functioning communities, the thing that actually makes a street work as a neighbourhood, even when the members of that neighbourhood are utterly different in ethnicity, age, interests, religion, politics, etc., is a particular kind of uh, love 
which it sounds like a contradiction, which is not about emotion or affection at all. It's a very hard-headed, disciplined approach to kindness and respect, which says, because I'm a human, I'm connected to all these other, we have this common humanity. Because I know I can only survive, my mental health depends upon being a member of function, a healthy functioning community. So surely the only rational way for me to treat the other members of that community, the other people who live in my street or my apartment block or who work with me is kindly and respectfully. And the test of whether I've actually got this is whether I can apply it in the case of people I don't actually like much, whether I can apply it when I'm dealing with someone I disagree with violently about politics or some other subject, but I'm going deeper than that and saying we're, we're, we, we have our common humanity to be respected. I respect you as a person. I have very little respect for the views you've just, you've just expressed. But if I understand the demands of compassion on me, then I know it's nothing to do with whether I like you or not. This is not an emotional state. This is a decision I make about the way I'm going to be in the world, which reflects my understanding of the fact that we are indivisible. Now, there's nothing like a pandemic to remind us of the truth of this. I mean, the coronavirus makes no distinction between you and me. Not, I mean, it, 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 the coronavirus does tend to be more savage in its effects on older males, so I'm particularly alert. Um, but it can kill younger people and it can make anybody sick. And it's, it, and it's humans. Uh, and, and a pandemic uh, reminds us that biologically we are all one and socially and culturally we're all one as well. I wanted to ask you about that point that you, I think you've just touched on there, that this concept, this idea that we all share the capacity for the kind of compassion and loving kindness that you talk about, you say it's a species thing. It's not a flight of fancy, but an evolutionary axiom. Could you just explain what you mean by that? Mm. Yes, by that I mean I'm not asking people to uh, catch some poetic, wafty, mystical idea and embrace it and say, wow, isn't that a, isn't that a valuable idea? We, we'll, we'll do this. All I'm saying is consider the species. Consider how humans have evolved. We have evolved to be social beings who are utterly interdependent. We, as members of this species, are hopeless in isolation. Put us on our own and we would not survive for long. We need each other, not, not only to help us do all the things we have to do to survive, but if, if well, let me take a graphic example. In our criminal justice system, the most savage and severe punishment we can think of is solitary confinement. The reason why that's the most severe punishment we can think of is that it is the most severe punishment you can inflict on a person who belongs to a social species. Cut us off 
from other members of the species and our anxiety levels go up. Uh, we experience all kinds of health problems ranging from inflammation to hypertension, etc. where we'll be more disposed to depression. Uh, it is a very unnatural state for us to be in isolation for prolonged periods. So what that says is, uh, we know this about ourselves. We don't have to be converted to some religion. We don't have to embrace some mystical idea of connectedness. We just have to look at the species, look at the fact that we've evolved to be a cooperative species. That's, that's how we survive. So then we say, okay, if that's the case, what, 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 is, what does the species ask of me? And what it asks of me is to behave as if we belong to each other. Hugh, I know that you have an answer for this, and I'd like our listeners to hear it. What immediately occurs to me when I read that, when you think, uh, when you talk about how we all have this in common, a capacity for, for compassion, I immediately think all of us. What about Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin? Do all of them have that same capacity? And if they do, what went wrong? Well, now we come to the centrepiece of the book, really, um, which is uh, a, a long chapter in the middle of the book, which is called Our Top 20 Hiding Places. Uh, and we've been talking about uh, our capacity for love and compassion and kindness and respect and so on, and the fact that this is demanding. And because it's demanding, many of us try to hide from it which means we hide from the essence of our humanity. We retreat from being fully human. And that can turn us into people who are a bit arrogant or a bit selfish or who are consumed by their ambition uh, or who are indifferent to the plight of others. Or if we found a dark enough place to hide from this light, this enlightenment about uh, about compassion, it can turn us into monsters. And history is full of monsters who we said of them, they are less than human. What we meant was they had retreated, they had hidden from the demands of their common humanity. And, and that's true of Hitler, but it's true of us as well. Whenever we hide, and we all do. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being absurdly idealistic about this. I mean, one of the things that people have said to me when I described this book to them, they've said, oh, I mean, I, I, hiding from myself, that's how, that's how I survive. You know, I, I go through life hiding from myself. Well, I mean, it is a highly developed art form for most of us. <laughs> there, are, there are dark places in all of us. What I'm suggesting is the dark places exist because the light is there. That the dark places are the shadows cast by our capacity for love, kindness, compassion, etc. Uh, and some people take to the shadows and stay there. Hugh, we're going to come shortly to talk about that centrepiece of the book. As you say, you, you give 20 different ways in which people hide from their true selves. We won't be able to go through all of them, no. sadly, but I've certainly picked some out. Just before we get to that, I have a few more questions. Mm. What does it mean to live in the way that you describe, to live in a way that is compassionate, that is loving? Does that mean we should always put other people's needs before our own? Does that mean, for example, if I'm in a bad relationship, that I should stay in a bad relationship? No, it certainly doesn't mean that. 
Um, and I'm not, how, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, depending how we define bad relationship, uh, I mean, a bad relationship is destructive of the people who are in it. I've been through two divorces in my life. Uh, I'm not proud of that. In fact, I find it very hard to come to terms with it, and I reflect on it often. But it is better to leave a bad relationship, by which I mean a relationship that isn't satisfying the needs of both parties, that isn't bringing satisfaction to both parties, much better to leave than to stay. Uh, and, of course, the question then is how will we leave? And we'll need to leave respectfully. Uh, we'll need to make sure that this is not acrimonious because that's retreating from our true humanity. But we'll need to leave in a way that retains our mutual respect for the love we had, for the history that we shared, and not to denigrate that, but to say it came to an end, but there were wonderful things about it while it lasted. It, it's possible to terminate relationships. It's possible to disagree, uh, even to disagree quite violently and vehemently without compromising uh, our compassionate, loving nature. And you make it clear that you don't have to sublimate all of your own desires or all of your own wishes to live in that way. But you give a lovely example, which I want to ask you about, of when sometimes what is required of us does demand that we sacrifice our own needs to some extent. The example that you give is the response to climate change. Could you talk a little bit about that in, in the context that we're discussing? Yes, yes. Um, very often we are called upon to place other people's needs ahead of our own or to be thinking of the common good rather than my personal well-being or my personal advancement. The pandemic has done that for us. It's reminded us that we will have to make sacrifices for the common good. We'll have to restrict our movements. We'll have to behave in ways that are very respectful of the need to keep our physical distance from other people at certain stages in the progress of the pandemic. Uh, we might have to stay home for long periods when we would rather go out and socialise. These are sacrifices we make. Now, this is, I suspect, and if the scientists are right, I'm pretty confident in saying, this is as nothing compared with the sacrifices we'll be obliged to make in the future in the interests of reducing carbon emissions and trying to repair some of the damage we've already done to the planet and adapting to the fact that the climate is already changing and even if we can slow the rate or put a lid on it, it's still going to have cataclysmic effects in many parts of the world. And so that's a, another classic example of how it won't matter whether, whether we want to do this or that. Uh, if it's not in the interests of the concerted effort to somehow mitigate uh, the effects of climate change, well, then we won't be able to do it. We, we'll... We won't be able to just jump on a plane and fly to Spain because we feel like going there uh, for a couple of weeks. In the future, we'll have to have a much better reason than I just wouldn't mind going and having a look uh, because we now know that every time we get on an international plane, uh, we're dumping huge quantities of carbon into the upper atmosphere. So it's a hugely polluting thing to do. It's, it's environmentally reckless 
but we're also carting bugs around the planet. Uh, so there are, that's two strikes against international air travel. Well, that's going to be a huge sacrifice for many of us to, to curtail that behaviour in the interests of the common good. Uh, and so that's, that's uh, it, it sounds as though it's a huge sacrifice. When you start making those sacrifices, of course, you are becoming more truly human. Back to the Gandhi quote, we, we find ourselves best when we lose ourselves in the service of others, and the service of others doesn't necessarily mean I'm volunteering as a lifeline counsellor. It means I'm doing something in the interests of other people. Hugh, you talk, and one of the central theses of your book, obviously, is the importance of self-discovery, the importance of knowing yourself and knowing your inner self. Many people, as you've indicated, are afraid, or they might be afraid, about what they might learn about themselves if they dig too deep. What would you say to those people? Is it worth it? Uh, unhesitatingly, I would say it's worth it. Now, I would say that because I'm at the stage of life where it's very obvious. I can look back and say it's very obviously worth it. And I fully understand that at earlier points in the life cycle, we are so distracted by the need to create an identity for ourselves, all that sort of stuff, uh, that it doesn't seem as if it is worth it. People will say, look, I'm too busy to worry about that sort of stuff, or I'm raising kids, I've got a career to establish, or you know, there's some other thing that's too pressing. And I'm a bit afraid that if I start digging, I won't like what I find. Now, the, uh, what I would say to that is, first of all, when we start digging, we will all discover things we don't like because we have all, to some extent, hidden from our personal enlightenment. Uh, but I would also say, would you rather live in a state of pretending or would you rather live a life of authenticity? Would you rather live the full life of having worked through the dark stuff and come out the other side and being true to yourself? Or would you prefer to live a kind of half-life where you're just getting on in a limited way, prepared to settle for creating a good impression and what other people think of you uh, without ever fully realising your potential as a human being? There are people who've, who say that quite explicitly. About, I mean, there are some examples I've quoted in the book of people who in their working lives will say, I could never retire. Uh, I mean, two, two of my friends have said this and I've disguised them heavily and put them in the book. I could never retire because I'd have to find out who I am. Mm. What a thing to say. Mm. I think I want to know who I am before I'm dead. Let's turn now then to the central part of your book, to this concept of people hiding from themselves. You write about the fact that there are many things that can distract us from our inner life and prevent us from connecting to our inner selves. Why do we hide, do you think? What are we afraid of? You may have just answered that question. And then we'll, we'll talk to some of the ways that people do hide. Mm. I think we, we mainly resist the, the inward journey. We mainly resist engagement with our inner life because we fear the darkness. We're, 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 we know that we have, because we're human, I mean, it's another thing we have to acknowledge about humans. There is a permanent struggle within all of us between selfishness and selflessness. 
there's a permanent struggle between me understanding my responsibility to my neighbours, my members of my family, my colleagues, etc., the need to serve other people, the need to respond to other people's needs, and the wish to please myself and to accumulate as much money or whatever my ambition might be, uh, even at the expense of other people. We know that that war goes on within all of us. Uh, so I think some people fear uh, going on the inward journey because they don't really want to have to confront the dark side of that war. But I think the other, the other thing that people fear about this journey is uh, that, they're, that they're asking themselves the question, what will be required of me if I discover who I really am? Will I be obliged to live differently? Will I have to become, shock, horror, a nicer person? <laughs> will I have to knock off some of my own rough edges? That, that question, what will be required of me if I discover who I really am, is a, is a wonderful question because it implies that we know the answer. Yes, what will be required of me when I get to the essence of me is that I will need to be a nicer person. I will need to tap those reserves of what you described as loving kindness or compassion, which I know are within me and I don't always draw on those reserves. You, there's that and there's something else as well it seems to me which is what if I look really deeply into myself and I realise that the way I'm living my life is not consistent with who I truly am. The work that I'm doing for example the career that I have what if that's really antithetical to my core beliefs or the mm. relationship that I'm in. Mm. What if um, I've been pretending to be someone else to make the other person happy and if he or she really knew what my inner self was that they, they wouldn't love me in the same way. So that's, that's, another, that's another risk, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and uh, I've quoted some examples in the book of people who have actually used the phrase, twisted themselves out of shape mm. in order to maintain a relationship that they never should have maintained or twisted themselves out of shape to do a job that they were really deeply uncomfortable about doing. Now, people who come to this point of saying, okay, well, what am I really? What do I really want to become? What do I really want out of my life? And then part of the answer is, well, I can't, I can't be that while I'm in this relationship. I can't be that while I'm in this job. There's a bit of upheaval coming my way. And people do go through that upheaval. Mm. Often, as we said earlier, the midlife crisis, mm. people do often make spectacular changes to their lives because they want to be more in tune with who they really are, and the universal experience of people who go through such upheavals is, I wish I'd done that 10 years ago. I now feel the liberation, the psychological freedom of being true to myself. So you give an example, I think, of a woman who changed her career who had been a GP and she'd done that for many years, but she just didn't feel completely fulfilled, completely happy, completely at ease. And it turned out when she really examined herself and looked hard inside that she wanted to do something more. And I think she became an emergency doctor, mm. didn't she? Yes, yes. And then there's another, another really nice example of a woman who'd been married for a very long time and 
she'd been going to church for many, many years when in fact she'd stopped believing a long time ago, but that she knew that going to church and believing was very important to her husband and to her adult children. And Mm -hmm. she had a fear that if she came out, as it were, and said that she didn't believe, she didn't want to keep going to church, so that might change their feelings for her. Mm. Yes, and that was a risk uh, at the end of that story. She still hadn't, Mm. uh, when I was last in touch with that person, they still hadn't made the move Mm. um, uh, or made the declaration. Mm. Um, but, But I would be confident that the psychological freedom that they would experience by making that declaration would make them more attractive, not less attractive. I think we often fear that people won't like us if we're truer to ourselves. Mm. Generally speaking, the reverse is true, that people will say, ah, now I get you. You know, I've always wondered what you were hiding. There was always this funny, I always had this sense that you were holding something back. Uh, And it's a hugely, uh, there's a a marriage, I tell the story of also in the book, where exactly that happened, where uh, the husband finally discovered that he'd been acting a part, dressing up in a particular way uh, to suit the requirements of his career and his his external identity. When he started to be more true to himself, one of the first things that happened was his wife said he was much easier to live with. Mm, she, she liked him a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's look at, as I say, you give an exhaustive description of the different ways in which people hide from themselves. You give 20 examples. I'm going to pick three of them. Let's talk about ambition, busyness and pursuit of happiness. Mm. So let's start with ambition. You start with two kinds of ambition. You say that there are two kinds of ambition. One is good and the other is not so good. What are they and when does ambition become a bad thing and become a hiding place for people? Mm. Yes, and by the way, that's a very interesting observation you just made. These these hiding places are not not always hiding places. I mean, there is good ambition. Uh, there there are lots of good good aspects of many of these. Not all, but many of these twenty things. Mm. Uh, they only become hiding places if we are actually hiding from ourselves in them. But ambition is one where we often do. So the the good and bad ambition. Uh, the good ambition, of course, is our ambition for others, our ambition to create a situation in which people's lives will be enriched or their situation will be improved. An example I've given of that is a school teacher who refused promotion, wanted always to be a classroom teacher because her ambition was for the kids. She wanted to help these children flourish. And people would say, but what's, where's your ambition? You know, why don't you want to become a school principal? No, no, my ambition is for the kids. Compare that with someone who says, I always wanted to be prime minister. Well, why did you always want to be prime minister? Well, I wanted the top job. I always wanted to be the CEO. Why did you want to be the CEO? Well, it's the natural, it's the pinnacle of you. You know, you climb the ladder, you become CEO. All the difference in the world between that, which is utterly self-serving, and a hiding place, ironically, from the self, um, um, compared with someone who says, I want to be Prime Minister because I think we've really got to finally solve the problem of poverty or we've finally got to solve the problem of uh, gender, the gender gap or whatever it might be. And so the ambition is all about creating some kind of social change. And I believe I can do that. I believe that if I... 
good fortune that'll also satisfy my personal ambition, but I believe that I'm the person that has the answer that can um, affect that social yes. good. That's right. Similarly, a person who might desperately want to become chief executive of an organisation because they can see how the organisation could better serve its customers or its employees or whatever it might be. The ambition is, sure, there's some personal ambition in there as well, but primarily the ambition is for the changes that I could make if I were in that position. Hugh, let's talk now about busyness. You make the point very effectively that busyness has really been elevated to a badge of honour these days. And you you talked about something that I have to say really quick, my own conscience when you said often the way we, uh, the first thing we say when we bump into somebody, a friend or an acquaintance is, how are you? Are you busy? <laughs> um, what's wrong with being constantly busy? <laughs> well, almost everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's as though the, we've got to the point where the switch is either on or off. You're either busy or you're dead. Uh, well, it is possible to dial down the busyness. Busyness is the great enemy of social interaction, social integration, social cohesion, and it's also the great enemy of self-discovery. Because as long as I'm running, I don't have to stop and ask why I'm running. Mm. As long as I can say, and in our culture it sounds like a virtue, I'm busy. Don't, don't disturb Daddy. He's busy. What, he's too busy to be disturbed by his own kids? There's something wrong with Daddy. Uh, oh, look, I can't, the neighbours are having drinks on Friday night. I'm too busy for that sort of stuff. Really? Not interested in nurturing the neighbourhood. Mm more interested in just staying on this treadmill that allows you to escape your social obligations but also your obligations to look within. Let's talk about the last one, which I found a bit more difficult to understand, the pursuit of happiness mm. as a way of hiding. Mm. What's wrong with that? Why why, if we pursue happiness as opposed to pleasure, and you make a distinguished distinction between the two, why, if we pursue happiness, will that cause us to lose touch with our inner selves? It partly depends on how we define happiness. That's a, that's a bit of a problem because in our culture we talk about happiness in very emotional terms, a feeling of euphoria, a feeling of positivity, I'm feeling happy, um, as though that's that's a suitable goal. Now, I'm not against happiness, by the way. I enjoy it as much as anyone else when I have little bursts of bliss, uh, when the bluebird of happiness lands on my shoulder. That's nice. And by the time I've noticed it's flown away and it's landed on your shoulder. I think um, I heard that bluebird in the background a little while ago. <laughs> yes, they're wonderful. We have bird life, rich bird life here. Um, and some of them are blue. Um, but no, there are a couple of things wrong with this. Um, one is that Happiness is one of the full spectrum of human emotions and every point on that spectrum has something to teach us. And one of the odd things is that, as our folklore reminds us, we grow through pain. No one ever says we grow through happiness. No one ever says the happy, bright, shiny moments in our lives are the great teachers of what it means to be human. Actually, the great teachers of what it means to be human are the moments of sadness, the moments of loss, 
or disappointment or even failure, where we have to pick ourselves up and say, well, I've really learned something out of that. Um, the other problem about happiness is that, of course, it makes absolutely no sense without the context of all those other emotions. I mean, if you'd never been sad, you wouldn't know what happiness is. So to be strictly logical about this, you'd say, well, if you want to pursue happiness, you'd better seek out some sadness. So that'll teach you what happiness is by contrast. Well, no one ever says that. So, uh, I mean, the ancient Greeks had a, had a word, eudaimonia, which is kind of roughly translated as happiness. But what they were talking about was meaningfulness. They were talking about living a full life at a, as a citizen knowing your place in the world, fulfilling your civic duty, entering into the full joy and pain of human relationships and so on. Now, if that's what we mean, then, of course, I'm all in favour of that. But the way it's, it's come to be interpreted in our culture, it's very much about us feeling good. Roy Baumeister, a prominent psychologist, American now at the University of Queensland, has written that happiness is mostly about taking. Meaningfulness in life is mostly about giving. Uh, in other words, the things that add richness to our experience, add satisfaction to our experience of being human are mostly about the things we do for other people. And they don't always bring happiness. Sometimes they do. I mean, um, there's a, a wonderful Harvard study from a few years ago that showed that parents are at their happiest when they're not with their children. <laughs> now, what that person concluded from that was, I mean, parents weren't saying, I wish I wasn't a parent. The source of some of the greatest richness and meaning in their lives comes from being a parent. But it's not all bliss. It's not all a bed of roses. A lot of anguish and frustration and irritation and fury about being a parent. And sometimes it's nice to go and have a game of golf or go to the movies together without the kids. You, this idea of hiding and the different, as I say, you talk about the different ways that people hide. What's the consequence of that? If people hide, if they live in ignorance of their inner selves, what's the consequence for them? The, the danger is that they'll become too comfortable in their hiding place, that they will, that they will be totally seduced, for example, by the pursuit of happiness or by their ambition or by their busyness to the, to the point where they will never actually be psychologically free. They will never experience the liberation of discovering who we really are and what our real job on the planet is. So that's a, that's a half-life. That's a diminished existence. And if you go on forever in hiding, the tragedy is you won't even know you're hiding. And that's your argument too, isn't it, that it, it is a life half-lived and that you, you won't fulfil your own potential as a human being. Yes, and that your relationships will suffer, that people will never have got to the real you because you haven't released the real you. You haven't, you haven't discovered and, and embraced the real you. So that means that the people who love you, the people who are trying to reach you, will never quite reach you because Hugh, you haven't reached yourself. Hugh, I know that you've 
been asked a bit about this inevitably and you've written a little bit about the impact of the COVID crisis on all of us. I'm wondering, given what you said about the opportunities for growth that come through adversity and that come through sadness, is the COVID crisis perhaps an opportunity for people to spend more time discovering their inner selves and developing a stronger sense of compassion? Might that be that? Might that be something positive that comes out of this horror? Absolutely, and I think there's evidence that it's already happening. Um, many people finding that they have more time at home, uh, more time than they've typically had, just to be with a partner or kids or even on their own, have said they've read more, they've thought more, they've been more reflective. And that can only be a good thing because the more reflective we are, the more likely we are to think about these questions like the gap between the outer self and the inner self. Uh, and the other aspect of this is that, that the, the, the pandemic has forced us to think more about our responsibility towards others. And sometimes that's just at the local neighbourhood level. The other way in which I think the pandemic will turn out to have been a blessing for those of us who have not been made ill by it, of course, it's not a blessing uh, for those who have been infected with the virus. Um, but for the community at large, I think the other positive that's clearly coming out of this is that we've all been made more conscious of our interconnectedness, of our responsibilities to the wider community, uh, of our responsibilities even to our immediate neighbours. I think many people have realised during the lockdown that in their street or in their apartment block, there's someone who is permanently alone. And now we've got a little taste of what that's like. We'll be more sensitive to the fact that they're at risk of experiencing social isolation all the time. Or there's a frail elderly person who needs a little bit of support. We hadn't thought of that before. I think there will be, as there was as a result of the Great Depression, uh, a difficult period for people to live through. And of course, right now, massive unemployment, and that's a huge burden for people to have to shoulder. But coming out of it, I think we'll almost inevitably find that people will look back on this period and say, wasn't it weird? Wasn't it awful? And yet, we learned some really important lessons about what really matters and what our priorities should be. Hugh, one final question. You talk towards the end more about this idea of human connectedness. You quote Desmond Tutu, who says we exist in a bundle of belonging, which I think yes. is a really lovely way of putting it. We're all bound by our common humanity. And you write that when we live in ways that are true to our own sense of self, other people are also the beneficiaries. Could you explain how that is? Mm. Yes, it's very much easier to relate to a person who is authentic. Uh, it's much harder, and, and often this is obscure. We don't actually understand why we're having trouble in a relationship. It's much harder to relate comfortably and openly to a person who is not comfortable and open uh, with themselves. Not, not comfortable in their own skin and open with their, with their true sense of, uh, of humanity. Uh, so it's not just that we experience the liberation, the freedom of being true to ourselves. 
it is that other people are delighted that they, they've discovered us in a new way, that, that, that their relationship with us itself has more authenticity. Uh, another psychiatrist that I quote in the book uh, says that love is a re- is a, a relationship between two authentic people. Mm, I love that quote. You can't love someone else unless you know and understand yourself and unless you are an authentic person. Yes, and unless they are as well. Mm. So, so if one party or both is not fully authentic, the relationship can't have the integrity or the authenticity that it otherwise would. So we come back to this central idea that by confronting the truth about who we really are, we are doing something for others. Hugh McKay, thank you so much for joining me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you and I wish you the very best of luck with, uh, with this book and with the fiction book that's been released at the same time. Thank you very much, Nicole. A pleasure to talk to you also. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.